Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark, an EVP of Industry Relations and Business Development at Lonocity, the assessment technology company. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Isabel Nisbet, who's had a career in senior roles in government and in regulation in the UK around assessments. She was the first CEO of Ofqual, who are the regulator of examinations and qualifications in England, after which she worked for Cambridge Assessment in Singapore and has done a lot of other assessment-related work assignments. Isabel's academic background is in philosophy, and she's engaged throughout her career in ethical issues. And she's the co-author with Stuart Shaw of Is Assessment Fair, which is a really, really strong book on assessment and fairness. And she served on the boards of governors of four universities in the UK. In October 2021, she was appointed by ministers to a panel reviewing education in Northern Ireland. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you. Really, really pleased to have you on the podcast. Can I start with the question I I tend to ask everybody, which is how do you get into the world of assessment? Well, I think the honest answer is a bit more by accident than by design, but that's probably the case with many people who are watching this. Um, I, as some people will spot from my speech, I'm I'm Scott. I I come from Glasgow in Scotland, where I went to school and university and I studied philosophy, as you said. I did some postgraduate work in philosophy at Oxford as well. And then I went into the civil service in the United Kingdom. That's working for government departments. That included work quite closely um, supporting ministers, like being their private secretary, which you'll have heard about. Um, But as my career developed in government, I tended to go into issues about regulation. And that started with issues about the regulation of healthcare and the medical professions. Um, And I also spent some time as a director at the General Medical Council, which is the professional regulatory body for doctors in the United Kingdom. Um, And then I moved, um, I should say that at the General Medical Council, I also had responsibility for overseeing um, both the postgraduate and the undergraduate education of doctors and what that should involve and what we would expect of it. Um, And then after that, I went to move to work for what was then called the Qualifications and Curriculum Authority in England, which looked at all aspects of the national curriculum and also on all aspects of assessment, including assessment of children at school, but also national qualifications as used in England, vocational qualifications, but also academic ones, GCSEs and A-levels. And I was in charge of the regulatory side of that work. And then, and this is quite an interesting development, in 2007, ministers decided that there was a bit of a conflict of interests if the people who were designing new qualifications and thinking about the curriculum were also regulating their own qualifications. So it was a bit like marking your own homework. So they decided to spin off the regulator and make it a separate body and send it to another part of the country, as it happened. And that was me. So I was asked to set up a new regulatory body, which was called Ofqual, after a few experiments with other names, and mm-hmm. um, that's I was its first CEO. And then, um, as Ofqual developed and moved on, I moved on. I spent some time working overseas in, in Singapore, and I enjoyed that very much. And when I came back, um, I've been doing some academic work, but also some work on ethics, which I've done all the way through, and it's a common factor in what I've done. Um, in particular, 
I've been involved in advising the government on issues about data ethics and the ethical ways of using data, including big data, which I think has huge repercussions for assessment. But I've also been continued to be interested in assessment. I did the work with Stuart Shaw on the book you mentioned, but I'm also doing some other work on assessment and particularly in taking stock of where it is now and what the future of assessment should be as we come out of the pandemic. So that's been my sort of slightly meandering career story. Um, I'm also a musician, so I've kept that going as well. I'm not really an assessment geek as much as some people who will be watching this are, but I have had a lot of practical experience of trying to regulate assessment and trying to make the public confident in it. So we'll get on to more substantial issues in a moment, but what kind of music do you play? I was an organ scholar, and I've recently sort of tried to take up the organ again. I sing quite a lot and do some um, leader singing, but also some church singing. So I do lots of music. And I enjoy it very much. Very, very good. So, look, the, let's let's start with the book because this is a, a really, really excellent book. Why did you decide to write it? Well, we decided to write it because we found ourselves engaged in slightly frustrating discussions, both with students and with colleagues and with work contacts about fairness in assessment. And the thing that was frustrating about it was that we felt that these discussions were often going at cross-purposes. What happened is that those who bitterly complained about unfair assessments, and as a regulator, I used to get, you know, interviewed on the radio about students crying in the toilets about how unfair their exams were and things like this. But what the students crying in the toilets meant by unfair was quite different from what the people in the assessment world did when they replied to the, to, to the accusations. An example of that, uh, one time when I was interviewed, the students were very annoyed because a mathematics question covered a technique in mathematics that they'd never been told was going to be examined. So we were never told there'd be a question about so-and-so. But then the, re the people replying to the accusation of unfairness said, oh, it's fair because everybody's going to be marked in the same way. Well, that wasn't what the people in the toilets were worried about. So they just meant different things. So Stuart and I felt that it would be helpful to try and set out the ground more clearly so that there could be more informed debates, but also to try and learn lessons from thinking about fairness in a wider context, because fairness is not just a technical assessment term, it's also to do with society and about morality and about justice. And so we tried to link some of the wider developments of those thoughts into the more specialised world of assessment. And so how does fairness work in assessment? Are there, are there different kinds of fairness? Yes, I think there are. I mean, when somebody says that test or that assessment was unfair, you need to consider what do they mean by fair? And there's a, uh, in the book, we distinguish a number of things, which I won't go through here. But at, at root, there are two kinds of very fundamental ideas in discussion about justice and fairness throughout history, really. One is a kind of equality. It's not absolute equality, because most people who design tests don't expect the outcomes to be identical for every single test taker but a kind of equality in the sense that people are treated equally in relevant respects. So, for example, if it's a maths test and I get a worse mark than you because you're better at maths than I am, that would be a relevant respect. But if there were questions that seemed to be more suitable for male candidates than female candidates, then that might be unfair in that sense. And we call that relational fairness. But the other one is something's fair if 
individuals get what they are thought to deserve in some sense. Um, it's the idea of desert being some, the appropriate reward for what's gone or penalty for what's gone before. So you often hear people saying, oh, my son deserved his grade A because he's really worked hard at his mathematics this year, etc., etc. Um, and the, that sense of desert. And an example where that went wrong was in the United Kingdom and in one or two other countries, there were special efforts made to compensate for to award grades for, for the school leavers, although they weren't able to run exams during the COVID pandemic. But the problem was that was done in a way that tried very hard to be relationally fair and treat everybody the same. But because the candidates had not actually contributed their own work to those assessments, they felt that they weren't getting a grade that they deserved and that their uh, grade was unfair because it was determined by factors other than what they themselves had done. So you need both sides of that equation to satisfy people about fairness. And there are other senses as well. But the important one is when you're having a debate, to be clear that the people answering the accusation are understanding what the person accusing the test of unfairness is meaning by fair. Because otherwise you get into a, what we in Scotland call a fanco. That's a particular word for a muddled up piece of string. And that's what happens in some of those debates. So I, just to put that in slightly different words, I think what you're saying is there's essentially two key ideas of fairness. One is that people are treated equally and one is that people get what they deserve and that they can sometimes be different or slightly in conflict? Yes, treated equally in relevant respect. And the nub is in that, really. Um, and or a lot of the, the debates about social justice in assessment and testing systems are about what are the relevant respects for the particular test. And that's something, no doubt, we want to talk about. So I think, yes, let's go on to the US in a, in a moment. But you said something very interesting when we were talking, preparing for this, about how when people take a test, you're really delving deep inside their psyche, almost like a doctor does when they're examining a patient. Uh, would you like to just share a little bit about your thoughts on that? My feeling about assessment, as you see, see I came to it from a broad background, is that it must be considered in context. I think it's too much of a cop-out for assessment professionals to see their products as something that's isolated from the way that they're used and that the way that they're used is somebody else's problem and not theirs. I think that's too easy. I think you've got to consider an assessment as an activity in a context. Um, and assessment is really making a judgment based on evidence of some kind. And in order to obtain the evidence, you've got to do something, you've got to, and if it's going to be evidence that, that about that particular candidate or student, then you've got to find out how to obtain it. And doing so can be quite uh, a disruptive and upsetting process. If you're making people sit for, you know, in a in a cold gymnasium, as it tends to be in, in England, um, in a, at a desk for three hours and write with a pen uh, without talking to anybody um, and to, to cram for it in, in advance. Now, that may well be an educationally beneficial or not thing to do, but it's quite an invasion of people's lives and people's well-being. So there's moral and ethical questions about what's the right way to obtain evidence and information and on what's appropriate to be a basis for an assessment judgment. Um, and in the, the link with medicine is in, in, in medicine, including areas like dentistry and eye care, there's a lot of concern as soon as you start to invade the body of the patient, as soon as you touch the patient or go into their mouth if you're a dentist or whatever, 
this particular ethical responsibilities. There must be a reason for doing that. And I think there should be a good reason and justification in terms of the learners' welfare for making them sit and do this or whatever else you're doing on the, in the, on the assessment. I'm not being a wimp about this. Um, life is full of difficult things to do. But there must be... All life is moral, and you've got to make moral judgments about, about what you do. So, essentially, everybody who is making people take tests needs to think about morally and ethically why they're doing it and whether it is in the benefits of the test taker or society and not just do it for the sake of doing it. Yes, and I should say that I'm not trying to load the dice against taking tests um, because not taking tests could have moral, moral implications as well. And if you had alternatives, for example, I once heard a presentation by a researcher who'd done a, 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 an experiment of con taking a continuous film of every child, the, the quite young children aged about six, in a classroom for a whole week. They just filmed everything these children did. Um, but, you know, that may not be a test, but it's got implica moral implications, implications for their privacy, for the whole question of whether it's right to do that kind of surveillance of children. So every method of finding information has got moral questions. All I'm saying is you've got to ask them and realise that however traditional testing is, it's got some um, in invasive qualities. There was a theory of exams that I used to meet some people that including politicians who had that I used to call the cold shower theory, which was that it was a sort of horrible thing that it was good for you to go through as if you sort of became a better person at the end of it. And I think that's pretty dodgy, actually. Thank you. So let's move on to the US, where, as you know, there's a huge debate about uh, particularly admissions testing for universities and whether organisations should become more test optional. Uh, do you have any perspective of that from this side of the Atlantic? Well, I'm very interested in from this side of the Atlantic because we have issues about the fairness of criteria for university entrance as well. Um, you mentioned that I was on the board of a number of universities. The board I'm currently on is of a university which specialises in, in ad adapting its entrance requirements for students from less conventional backgrounds and those who have been disadvantaged in some way are older students who haven't done traditional examinations. So there's whole questions about how to do that appropriately and, and fairly. And the other thing is I welcome in the United States debate the recognition that selection for university is a form of assessment based on evidence and the question of what evidence to use is one that's a morally very difficult one, particularly in situations where the outcomes, however you do it, appear to benefit one group in society rather than another. And we have said that that issue is not unique to the United States. Um, I would say that there's a question that is very important for assessment is, the question asked is, is it the test that's unfair? If, for example, white candidates do much better than black candidates, does that mean the test is unfair or does it reflect some unfairness or inequality in society that is being, quotes, fairly reflected in the test? And I think my answer is that there's no easy answer to that question. It may well be that for reasons to do with the context in which a very carefully designed test is taken, some students have much more opportunity to prepare well for it than others. Um, and whatever you do instead of using one of the tests itself can be quite problematic. So, for example, um, looking at um, high school diploma outcomes and, and grade point averages 
I mean, how comparable are they? Now, again, admissions deans will tell you that they know, because they know the state that they work in, they know which ones are more generous than others and all that, but it's all a bit anecdotal. Um, and also, if you take something like personal statements, which you'd think these are good because they give you much richer inf information about the student, you'll find that some students are coached in how to write these, and in particular how to put in particular words and phrases which admissions um, staff are looking for. And so it's not necessarily an even playing field there. Um, and a comparison would be made between the role of introductory interviews, selection interviews for universities. Traditionally in England, in the, the elite universities like Oxford and Cambridge had a form of interviewing, which had a big part in, in decisions to select from well-qualified candidates. But some schools, um, particularly expensive elite private schools, had special training sessions where they coached and trained their students in how to prepare for these interviews. And others that came from a less... Um, habituated background for such progression to these universities, the interviews were a sort of social nightmare, really, because they were totally f floored by the situation that they were put in. So I think my long answer is that the question of how fairly to select for university is a morally complex one. I, For those who have made decisions about being, quote, test optional, I do understand the reasons for it. The question is... Is the alternative fairer? And what do you mean by that? Um, and also, it has to be determined by what question you're answering in your selection for a particular course. Are you saying um, we have 400 candidates who would be outstanding in this course and we've only spaced for 40, like happens in many, school, many countries for their medical schools, for example? Um, that's one problem. But all university selection and college selection is not like that. Others is a question of putting the right student on the right course. So it's a question of getting rich information about each person, even if it's slightly different for each one. But another question could be which students have the potential to do well in this course or to benefit most from it. And that could be a different... If they've not had the same opportunities to develop their potential earlier on, then you're not looking at equal evidence for all of them. So you've got to try and take that into account. So I think these are highly sensitive and difficult questions. And the good thing is that they're being addressed. Um, I do regret some of the heightened emotion that's gone into some of this exchange, but I think it's a very important one to have and it's a very important one for society. And I think that those of us in the United Kingdom are beginning to develop some of the same issues and to face them in their own way. So are UK exams fit for purpose? school or educational exams? Well, uh, first of all, if you're talking about exams in the UK, um, you've got a wide range of vocational qualifications and exams, thousands of them, which are taken usually throughout the UK, although some are specific to parts of the UK. But for academic exams, which I think was what you were really thinking about, like in England, GCSEs and A-levels, you have four different systems in the UK, um, and the, the different countries in the UK have, have developed in different ways, although three of the four countries do use the brands of GCSEs, which tend to be taken at 16, and A-levels, which are kinds of pre-university um, exams, um, which are taken usually at 17 or 18. Um, and I think, if you ask me if they're fit for purpose, well, 
I think they need to be kept continually under review, and that's happening in the, in the different countries. The one that's probably slightly different from the others is England. Of course, it's by far the biggest. Um, and I think there are two issues there. One is the timing of exams, um, meaning by that whether they should all be at the end of a course or whether there should be modules of some sort or some form of continuous or periodic assessment. Um, and England has gone most in the most extreme way down the line of putting the load at the end of the of the course and relying on terminal exams. A little bit of that's to do with the cold shower theory, I think, but a view that it's in, in some respects fair because it reflects the students' learning at the end of the period. But there is a question of whether that's, that's the right way to provide assessment that supports learning. In medical education, um, they did some research when they looked at students who had been on a university course that had sort of a big emphasis on cramming and the finals at the end of the course, a long, long, many years of training, and the other one that had more project-based learning, each project being assessed as it went on. And they tested how much they knew just a month after the finals people had taken their exams and then how much they knew two years later. And, I mean, summarising heroically, the the project people did retain things for longer but at the time of the exam the crammers um, did no more so it's a balance there but of course um, the English um, reliance on terminal exams did meet its Waterloo when we had the pandemic because we couldn't have terminal exams so particularly for the first year of the pandemic there was an absence of evidence on which to base an assessment um, so that's that's one thing about the timing. The other is about the mode of the assessment. I mean by sitting at a desk and writing stuff on a bits of paper with a pen for three hours or two and a half hours or whatever, um, based on the curriculum that's been really set by the syllabus for the examination. Um, there's issues about the actual way in which it's done, the sitting and writing. I don't know if anybody listening to this has themselves written an extended piece with a pen on paper in recent years. And I said... I haven't for the last 20 years or so. It's not just the physical thing of writing with the pen, um, as distinct from, you know, keyboard fingering. It's the kind of intellectual skills you get. There's a kind of planning skills that used to be developed for people writing, you know, first one-off essays, which involved doing a little plan and a little box on the side of the page, and then you wrote it all out. And now there's a kind of advanced editing skills, which do involve some planning, but some continual revision of the planning and re-editing, which is very important in, in work contexts and in academic contexts, but is a different kind of skill. So there's a question of what kind of not just what the constructs are that you're assessing, but what kind of skills are you requiring to sit the assessment and are they appropriate? And I personally think that sitting and there's real questions of validity of sitting at a desk. It, first of all, you're not con talking to anybody else, and, you know, for three hours. That would be a strange kind of work context in which you did that, or even academic context. Um, a, you're referring to my own work on the book with Stuart... Yes, I did some work, quite a lot of work on my own, as he did, but we did an awful lot of work together, and I had to learn how to learn from him and to sort of rethink some of the things that I did because of the kinds of points that he was making. So I'm not sure that's picked up. And there is a question of the, the validity of this 
sitting and writing stuff, and both compared with how university assessments are carried out, most of which are done using some kind of word processing, and a lot involve modular assessment, but also the work context and the kind of skills that employers are looking for. So I think there's quite a lot to be questioned about exams in the UK. And the last one is that, and this just applies to particularly to England, but also to an extent to Wales and Northern Ireland, the A-level qualification has great strengths. I mean, I've seen it, how highly it's regarded overseas when I was at Singapore. And the quality, the, the technical quality of the assessment work on these A-level exams as they're taken in the UK is outstandingly good. As a regulator, we found it very difficult to, make, to find fault with it. But they're very, very specialised. They're much more specialised than the hires that I took back in the day in Scotland. And they're more specialised than most um, end of high school qualifications in the world. So there is a question of whether students are being expected to specialise too soon. So those are really, really good points. Thank you. And certainly I've seen research in the psychological area, which says that if you have a whole series of exams over time, rather than one at the end of the course, then people learn more from the distributed effect than from the fact that they're learning for each exam and they do retain it better for the longer term. So I think there is other other evidence around about that. I know you've worked in your career. Yes, I would just... Go, go I've, ahead. Yes. I'm not saying that people should have horrendously traumatic exams every month instead of once in four years. There's a question of the whole traumaticness of the exam process. Yes, there can, be, there can be motivational effect in preparing for something that really means an important thing to you, but that's different from actually suffering trauma and, and stress and anxiety. So, you know, I think when we're thinking about the possibility of more regular assessments, we shouldn't think this is a rollout of the horrors of some folk memories of terminal assessment. Okay, okay, no, fair, fair point. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I would like to cover a couple of issues. One is to talk a little bit about your experience in other countries and also to talk about the future. So I know you've worked yes. in uh, several several countries. Is there any sort of good practices and assessment in other countries you'd like to mention? Yes, I've seen an awful lot of good practice. Um, what I've learned from looking at practice in other countries is not picking up models that we could then just put in a, an envelope and, and open up and use in England or Scotland or wherever, but that it it's really enables me to hold up the mirror to myself and ask questions about what we're doing here in our context. And I, an example, I'm just trying to think of an example, but as you know, I worked for a while in Singapore, and one of the things that Singapore is well known for is the so-called Singapore maths, which is, you know, really good. But I don't think that means you could simply take all the documentation for Singapore maths, address it to each school in the United Kingdom and then unload it. But some of the questions and the, th the strengths of Singapore maths uh, help you to ask, are we good at doing that? Or do we do that as well as they do it? Do we, could we do it better here? An example is spotting um, processes and ideas which very young children are finding very difficult. And so they tend to fall off their horse here. And the Singaporeans are very good at picking that up very early. For example, children who really struggle with using number at all at the age of, say, six or seven. Ways of helping these children into using other things like building bricks and things like that to help them into the concept of number. And I was very impressed how quick the primary teachers were in spotting those and helping them. They were doing the same tasks as the other, their friends in the, in the class. Another strength in Singapore was their importance they give to moral education. The children in the primary schools 
are encouraged to talk about what it means to be a good person, to talk about what we would call virtues, which is unusual in certainly in English schools, um, and also to the, when they're appraised by their teachers, the teachers will not just talk about how good they were at English and maths and Chinese or whatever, but how friendly they are and how willing they are to help their friends and that kind of thing. And, you know, I think there's good, good messages there, but I'm not suggesting it's a, just a little pattern that you can just photocopy and roll out everywhere else. Uh, that makes sense. What about the future of assessment? How do you see that, that going or what would you like to see? Well, I, I mentioned that I've done some work for the UK government on the ethics of big data and working with masses of information and combining databases. I think the big moral question for us in the future is what is a morally right basis on which to make assessment judgments that affect the lives of young people? And what's the evidence base what's, and what's a morally right way to collect it? It shouldn't just be, should we take written exams and change them into digital exams by making them put the answers in a word processor instead of writing them down? That's not the key question. The key question is, what is the evidence you should use? Because potentially you can use any... I mentioned this story about the primary children being filmed for everything they did. That wasn't very expensive, and it's quite easy to do nowadays. Um, but what, how do you select your data? And the other big question for the future is, how is the public going to be confident in the assessments and examinations that we offer to our young people? Um, the assessment industry, people, those of us inside the assessment world, need to realise the public has a right to see what we do, to understand what we do, and we have a responsibility to make sure that they can be justified in having confidence in it. And that's a very important question. It's not just communications in some peripheral sense. It's at the heart of what we do, um, and I think it's going to be very important in the future. Well, that makes sense. One final question, if I may. Uh, people listening to this podcast might well be developing exams or delivering them. Any sort of key things to think about fairness that people might not think about? I think the main, there's two big things. One is that the way that your marking schemes are designed will be to try and ensure that you, all the people, the test takers, are judged by the same categories in relevant respects. Um, and the other one is that each individual test taker should be able to feel that they've got the outcome that they deserve. But the other thing is to say that those of us inside the assessment industry have a responsibility to look outside at the way in which our assessments are used. And if we have any concerns about those, even though it's a question of simply communicating them to a wider public, like, for example, manufacturers of products do if there might be a danger if they were wrongly used by young children, something like that, of keeping your eyes open to the wider world in which they're used. Um, and so never just see your test as something in a little box, but see it in an open box in a wider social context. Thank you, Isabel. That's great. And to remind listeners, uh, is Isabel's book is called Is Assessment Fair? It's an excellent book. It's one of, one of the best books on assessment I've read and really thought-provoking. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us today. We really appreciate your support. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then why not follow us through your favourite listening platform? And also, please reach out to me directly at johnaqueshmart.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars. Thanks again, and please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly. Mm -hmm.